All right, as we shift gears now, we are going to hear a word from Pastor Chris from 1 Corinthians 14. That's the chapter that we're coming up on. And as he and I were discussing this, um, we realized, and I mean, I'm sure you guys have been reminded of this too, the Corinthian church had some issues. Would you agree? They have some issues. And uh, one of the issues that Paul addresses in this chapter is the utter chaos of their worship. Their times together, don't you guys appreciate our band, how they play together? Give them a hand, actually. We never thank them enough. Like, my job actually feels really easy a lot of the time because I get to work with such talented people who all use their gifts to serve. But as we were thinking about the Corinthian church, we were wondering maybe if their chaos should be a model for us on how we could serve each one of you. Sound like a bad idea? Yeah, because it is, okay? Very good. They wanted to use their gifts, uh, and their, really their sharing of their own individual gifts was more important than order and doing things to build up. So we decided, as we thought about it, we wondered if, what would happen if we did that, if we replicated what we think the Corinthian church's worship service probably sounded like. And so I have asked these wonderful servants up here, look at their faces, they're so excited to do this. <laughs> I have asked them to just think of a, a song or a riff or an interlude that would bless you all right now. And we decided that we're just going to go for it and see what a wonderful, edifying, joyful noise comes out. Okay? Uh, we practiced this for all of 10 seconds on Thursday evening, so prepare for the blessing of your lives, friends. Okay? Let's, band, let's just serve them with our gifts now. Is that okay? Should we do that? Let's do that. Ready? My Redeemer. Mark, Mark, stop that, stop, bad bass. We hope you are all tremendously blessed by the way that we just served you all, okay? Do you feel a blessing? Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I brought the idea up to Jared. I thought it would sound at least okay. That was terrible. It's terrible. It's bad. And it was your idea for the record. I know. It's... Mark, uh, could you please leave right now? Op open up the 1 Corinthians 14 if you could. At, you know, that's really what, this is a strange chapter in Scripture. Um, the title is actually going to be the whole idea of harmony, which we did not hear right now. We heard nothing but discord because everybody felt they can just share their own gift in their own way, at their own time, and for as long as they want, and it just became chaos. So Paul's writing to a church that was realizing they were losing unity, harmony, and peace. So that's what this is about. But before we go, let's just pray, and uh, I just have a few things I want to say. Let's pray. Father, I pray for unity in our church. I thank you for this body. I thank you for the opportunity we can to hear from your word. I thank you, God, that um, you give us a place of sanctuary where we can come and find encouragement from one another. We can find hope through your word. We can find purpose. And I just pray, God, that through the service today, people will leave refreshed, 
and hopeful. You're so good to us. Even a breath we're breathing right now is a gift from you. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to uh, reiterate one more time that tonight is our 6 o'clock annual meeting. So on the back foyer, we have the annual report, which you can look through. This is because this is for you. We're a congregation. Congregational church means this is your church. But there's also testimonies up there, two pages of testimonies of people who are joining our church. And Trevor has done a tremendous job of preparing people to be ready not just for baptism but for membership. And what they do is they write their testimonies out. How they came to know the Lord. And a lot of them tell about the past. How God brought them to Christ and where they're at now. And I read some of these and you have to meet, you have to read some of these. They're amazing. One person just writes in there, the reason he got baptized is I believe that God sent his one and only perfect son to earth to pay for my sin on the cross. Amen. Another person said, when I was a young boy, I sat down by my dad's chair and I prayed. I accepted Jesus into my life forever. One person says, during these uncertain times with COVID and civil unrest, I've been reminded by the verse in Psalm 118.24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. These are people from that are joining our body. Another person talks about their testimony when they're 16 years old. They met their future husband at the same church. And to say it was love at first sight isn't completely true, but after that, we began dating. So see, there's romance that's joining our church. Another person writes, When I was five years old, during Awana, I was taught about salvation in heaven and hell. There was an opportunity to come forward except Jesus, but I was too scared. And later that night, my older brother asked me what the lesson was, and I told him, and he said how he was scared too. So they decided together to pray and accept Christ together. That's an awesome story. One person writes, things in my life, what brought me to this church and also to make a commitment to Christ, and things in my life were not going well. And God really tugged at my heart, and I felt him saying to me, I am here. Come back to me. Only I can give you the peace that you're looking for. Another person writes this, he loves me more than I can possibly understand. Another person wrote, if someone asked me back my early days, do you think you're going to heaven? I would have answered, I hope so, but I have no idea how lost I was or how desperately I needed Jesus to save me from my sin. These stories are awesome. One person that is joining our church said at the age of 16, I was kicked out of my house. My dad and I got into a fist fight. I was kicked out. But an amazing family from our church who had just lost a son in a car accident took me in. This is a really cool one. One person said, the miracle happened. I bought a $5 Bible from Walmart and I started reading. That's pretty awesome. Another person just says, my current verse is this, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not dead yet, so Lord, what do you want me to do today? These are people joining our church, it's pretty cool. Like, like really, truthfully, this is what life's about. Get caught up in this. 
All right, open up to 1 Corinthians 14, one of the weirdest chapters in all the Bible. It's going to be fun. Brian, you will love this. You will love this. So, in our illustration, Jared had everybody singing their own song, their own note, playing their own instrument in their own way, and it caused dissonance and chaos. In the Corinthian church, the same thing was happening. The Holy Spirit was coming upon them, and they were all being filled, but they all decided to use their gifts in their own way. So Paul penned chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 to say, yes, God's gifts are given to everybody, but they're for a purpose. To bring us together. In fact, he's so emphatic on the importance of unity, he wrote chapter 13 last week. The greatest thing is love. Love is patient with people, kind, keeps no record of wrongs. And if you're ever going to memorize a chapter of Scripture, memorize chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So now it's time to join in the chapter 14. Chapter 14 actually leaves off, leads off where chapter 12 led ended. Look at chapter 12 ended. Paul is saying, everybody's got gifts, and he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's chapter 12, verse 31. Then in chapter 14, he continues the idea after a hiatus in love. Chapter 14 says, pursue love and earnestly desire these spiritual gifts. It's exactly what he said in chapter 12. So he's using this idea of eagerly desire. That means, that means why don't you want God to fill you with His Spirit and give you gifts? It's a good thing. It really is. It's a really good thing. But it needs to be done in the right way for the right purpose. And so the purpose all through chapter 14 is expressed in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. That's the purpose for the church to be built up. It says the same thing in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You can strive for the Spirit to fill you, but it better be for the purpose of building up the church, the idea of peace and harmony. He says the same thing in verse 17, the same thing in verse 26. And he ends this chapter in verse 40 by saying, But all things should be done decently, in order. Why? So there's not chaos. That's the point. So that in mind, let's go through two gifts he's going to talk about that we should eagerly desire. He's going to talk about tongues. We're going to read this in verses 1 through 5, and he's going to talk about prophecy. And then he's going to elaborate on them. But I don't want to take a whole lot of time on some of these. I'll just go through it real quickly. What is tongues? Tongues is the Greek word glossa, which just means language. That's what it means, a language. Sometimes the language in the New Testament is understandable. I say a word, you understand it. If I say the color blue, you have a color in your mind. Sometimes the word glossa is used in a way that I will say my language, English, and you might be a foreigner from another language, but you'll hear what I'm saying in your language. That, that happened in the beginning of the book of Acts. That's a miracle. In fact, Peter spoke in all the languages that came to Jerusalem could hear him in their own language. This, chapter 14, is a different kind of tongues. It's an unknown language. It's a language when spoken. It's not understood by the speaker. 
nor is it understood by a hearer. Listen to verse 2. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he others mysteries in the Spirit. So the Spirit is pulling out mysteries and they're coming off a tongue that is misunderstood. Nobody can understand it. That's what a tongue is. And it's for the purpose of prayer and praise from the individual to God. So in a sense, it's private. Prophecy is different. Prophecy is going to be spoken about here in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up but the one who prophesies builds up the church. What does he mean? Because prophecy is understood teaching. You could say it like this. It's clear teaching. And it's usually divine insight where the Spirit brings something to mind out of your heart to share with everybody in the public setting so they will be blessed. They will be strengthened. They will learn a principle. They will learn an insight. They will be better for it. And so what he says in verse 4 is he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So in other words, he's saying, eagerly desire the better gifts, specifically desire prophecy. Look at verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. So he doesn't mind that they speak in tongues, but he wants them to prophesy. So why not tongues? Why isn't tongues the priority gift? And we have to answer this because... Some people in the current church culture believes tongues is the signifying gift of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to somebody 10 years ago. And he said, are you Christian? You saved? I said, absolutely. Are you? He goes, yeah, I am. He said, but do you speak in tongues? And what he was hinting at was you really might not be saved unless you speak in tongues. That is the signifying gift. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. In fact, it's really not the gift you want, necessarily, compared to prophecy. Like, look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he speaks in tongues, a lot. But then he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words with the tongue. So what he's saying is he's saying... Tongues, eh, compared to prophecy, it's not accomplishing unity. And he says it doesn't accomplish unity in the church. And so verses 6 through 11, if you look at verse 6, he says, Now brothers, I come to you speaking in tongues. How will I benefit you? So he's saying, tongues isn't necessarily a benefit because you don't understand me and I don't understand even what I'm saying. And in verses 14 through 17, you can read that on your own, but he basically is saying, well, verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Meaning I don't understand what I'm saying. We'll talk about more my personal idea of tongues. But the point is, for the congregation, tongues isn't achieving unity. For the unbeliever, they will not be convicted of their sin and will consider themselves even more with it or sane than the believer. Look at verses 20 should be to 24. I did a mishap, but that's okay. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Saying just be mature when you approach the body. In the law, or you could say in Isaiah, it is written by people of a strange tongue 
And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So if everybody's speaking in tongues and nobody understands, the person who comes in is going to say, what's wrong with those people? Really, I mean, there's something wrong with them. Actually, I saw on, I saw on the internet this past week, one of the spiritual counselors of Trump was speaking in tongues in her huge auditorium, calling down angels to change the election. And she's using tongues. And I saw a lot of people saying, this is why evangelicals are dangerous people. Mocking us, because tongues is not used in the right way. Can be dangerous. Because really, if the Spirit's in us, we should be people of more of self-control than the people of the world. We should be saner and more in our right mind. And if you give them a chance to say, no, they're not, they're nuts, that's not accomplishing the goal. So why prophesy then? What's the importance of prophecy? Paul is very clear about the importance of prophecy. But you have to also understand the church of Corinth at that time. Warren Wearsby says it like this. Keep in mind, members of the Corinthian church did not sit in services with Bibles on their laps. The New Testament was still in process of being written and the Old Testament scrolls were expensive and not available to most believers. God spoke to His people directly through the prophets and the message was sometimes given in a tongue. That's what Warren Wearsby says. In other words, what he's saying is they didn't have this yet. In fact, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They didn't have any of this. And so what Jesus gave a promise to the early church, and here's the promise he gave. For those who are in his body, he says in the book of John 14, 26, he, meaning the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. So what is happening in prophecy in the early church in Corinth is they are being led to speak what Jesus already taught. And it has a purpose. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. Verse 3 says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. So in other words, the Holy Spirit will fill somebody to speak, speak Scripture, the words of God, for the purpose of encouragement, for the purpose of a building and consolation. Look at the end of chapter 13, verse 13. Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. When you prophesy and you are, it, it upbuilds, what does it upbuilds? Faith, it builds faith. When you prophesy and it encourages, what, what does that build? Hope. Hope is courage, encouragement. When you prophesy and you bring consolation, what does that build? Love. So prophecy are words that build on faith, hope, and love. So how about for the unbeliever? Jesus said to the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And again, I, got to, I get this wrong all the time, so you have to forgive me. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead me to write these slides. It's human error. But look at 24 and 25. 
So 24, but if all prophesy, an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that their God is really among you. So when they hear the words of the Spirit being spoken, Scripture being spoken, they will be convicted of sin and fall on their face, just like Jesus said in John 16. It's very interesting. Sometimes after I preach, somebody will come up to me and say this. Were you spying on me this week? Were you, seriously, were you speaking to me? I was really offended by what you said. How did you know that's going on in my life? I didn't know that's going on in your life. I extrapolate from Scripture principles that God wants you to hear, and sometimes they pierce you, and, they, and it's like a light shines on you. Like, how does he know? It's called the Holy Spirit. He knows. That's the point. So that is why prophecy is the greater gift. It accomplishes faith, hope, and love. So what if? So he's going to go in some what-if scenarios. So starting at verse 26, he says, What then, brothers, or what if, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. Like, don't just sing what you want. So then he says, the first question, he's going to talk about tongues. So he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So the first question is, what if a number of people stand up and start speaking in tongues? What do we do? What do we do? Paul says, well, it's very simple. First of all, they should do it two or three so one person doesn't just commandeer the whole thing. Some people like to. Do you ever find people sometimes like to take the floor and they never give it away? I get accused of that often. I'm sorry. That's why they put me as a preacher. But the point is, they should share not to commandeer and take over, but to bless. But he then says, if there is no interpreter... They need to remain silent. So it works like this. If God really is filling somebody to speak in tongues, he really will bring another person to interpret what's said. He's a God of unity. I actually was at a church service one time where a person stood up and started speaking in tongues. And the pastor stopped and he said, is there an interpreter here? No interpreter? He said, okay, could you please sit down then? so we can continue on with the service. And he was not rude, but he was biblical. So then he goes in, what if, what if, let's, uh, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So let's say a number of people start speaking and teaching out loud, saying, God told me to tell you this. And they all start saying it out loud. Paul's saying, again, let it be two or three. And then let's say while you're speaking, somebody sitting said, wait, I really do have a word from God. You need to defer. You need to be sensitive, not commandeering, and not thinking that God only speaks to me. Because if you, that's a trump card. Did you know that? It's a great trump card. You know what God told me? 
you know what God told me? You need to do this. So if I say no, well, God told me. It's a great trump card. Paul's saying, no, no trump card. Not only that, he, he even goes a step further. He says, if you do believe you have a word from God, you have every right to be evaluated by the other prophets. So be ready to be questioned. Who are the other prophets? There's some question on that. It might have been the pastors. Could have been the apostles. Could be filled men to question. But we'll talk about more of that in a second. But again, what is the goal? Verse 33 is the goal. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So it's peace, harmony, and unity. The community of believers is not a debate forum. It's not a Facebook comment section. It is not where we're trying to be contrarians for contrarians' sake to outdo each other. We are here as a body truly trying to hear from God. What does he have to say? What does he have to say? So that leads us to the next question. Should women be silent? It's a great question. Let's go on. I'm kidding. I get this from verses 34 and 35. Got to deal with Scripture when it comes up. Verse 34 and 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. I really don't want to handle so let's go. No. So I've got three answers. Should women be silent? Some people will say yes at all times, not just in church, but at home. Not just at home, but in the office. Some people really are strong on this. I call them some Baptist Islamofascists. It's a dangerous thing. And you'll see why in a second. Second, so some people say no. Women should be able to speak. In fact, if you read a lot of commentaries, the way that reads really should go right from 33 to 36 in verses 34 and 35. In some, there's what's called families of scriptural text. Sometimes 34 and 35 is placed after verse 40. And so some scholars would say this is what this is, is a scribal commentary. It's not necessarily the Word of God. So they would say, this doesn't have anything to do with women being silent. But I'm I, th I think we have to be very careful with that. Because we could do that about almost everything in Scripture. So we can't just do violence to something. I think it's something to be listened to because there is some indication the Greek structure is a little bit different from the rest of the book. But I, I don't want to do that because once I start doing that, I can do anything with Scripture. So what's the, I think the third answer is it really depends on what is going on, what is the context, and what is happening. So should women be silent? If you say yes, then you're contradicting chapter 11. Because Paul is hinting that chapter 11, women can prophesy and pray. We talked all about that three weeks ago. If they do it within the, the structure of mutual submission and the created order. That's why it says here, if you look in verse 34, for they are not permitted to speak, but be, should be in submission, as the law also says. What's the law? The, the Old Testament. The created order is that men and women are to be in submission one to another and in unity. And apparently what was happening, as we said in 1 Corinthians 11, it was really possible 
that women were bringing shame upon their husbands because they were not one at home. In fact, there is some idea that at that time, some women were adopting the cultural norms of the temples around them when women would speak oracles from demons and they would cause chaos. And in this case, you'll see that the context is prophesying that's bringing chaos. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the purpose. The purpose isn't just to speak what's on your mind. There's also some interesting writing and the idea that some men were prophesying. They were being filled and they were prophesying. And their wives started challenging their right to prophesy because they knew who their husbands were. So they were opening, challenging the teaching in front of the congregation. That's why he says it's shameful. The idea is you are, you're embarrassing. It'd be kind of like tonight at the business meeting, I start speaking and saying what I think God's been doing in our church, and my wife stands up and she says, yeah, right, Chris, coming from the guy that throws wet towels on a comforter, you want me to listen to you? Like I've seen women say, you don't know my husband at home. I don't think he could speak a word of God if you gave him the Bible. There's some of that in idea here. But to sum up these two verses, I like what D.A. Carson writes. He says three things. Number one, if you use these two verses to determine the marriage relationship, you are ignoring everything else in the Bible, what it has to say about men and women. Don't forget the command for men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. It is an exquisitely high standard. Second thing he says is we must note there are role distinctions between men and women to be observed. There are role distinctions. And we have to, and the idea is go home and make sure you're unified before you start talking. Be one. The third thing is this, is we do need to recognize, and D.A. Carson says, this teaching is for our good even though we may not understand it, but not for our enslavement. But I want you to be brought to a third part. I think this may be the most important thing. Let me see how much time I have. Is Jared, you still out there? Oh, we're doing good, Jared. Don't give me those eyes. Give me those bad eyes. I want you to, I want you to think through this. I think this may be the most important part. And it's concerning the gospel. And the journey of the gospel. Look at what Paul says, starting in verse 36. So verse 33, he said, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then verse 36, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul is talking to people who are prophesying, and these prophets are pretty much discrediting him. That's what the whole book's about. But what Paul is saying in verse 36 and 38 is that he has apostolic authority over what the prophets are saying. And whatever he writes has supremacy or it's more weighty. He's an apostle. And apostles, according to verse 37, are commands from the Lord. 
So his writings are stronger than the prophecies that are being given because they're direct commands. He says that in 2 Timothy 3. These are inspired words given by the Holy Spirit. Second thing, if you read Scripture, it's really interesting. Actually, I want to bring you to this. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. It's right after James, or it's right before James. Hebrews, James, but Hebrews chapter 2. This is called the rearview mirror of Scripture. And it's heavy, really heavy. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start in verse 2. For since the message, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, what's the message declared by angels? That's the Old Testament law. It's said that Moses got the law from angels. So for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that means if you disobeyed the Old Testament law, you're in trouble. That's what he means. How shall we, New Testament believers, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So if the old, our message is much weightier than the Old Testament, and if we neglect it, we won't escape. That's what he's saying. So this message, it was declared first by the Lord. Who is the Lord? His name's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He first declared it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Who, are, who is us? The apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So Jesus spoke the message, the apostles wrote the message, and the gifts were given to authenticate the message of the apostles. So he keeps saying in here, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles to the message. Watch the message, chapter 1, 1 through 4 in Hebrews. Listen to the message. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the words of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the message that was first delivered by the Lord, given by the apostles, authenticated by the signs and miracles. There's a movement in what's it about? The gospel. So then what happens, Ephesians agrees with that. Ephesians 2.20 says that what we stand on as a church, we stand on first the Lord as the foundation, then the words of the prophets, I think the prophets who were speaking at that time, and then the apostles, Ephesians 2.20. And then what is that? That's this. That's this. And we have this. And if you think my argument that this is really about the Gospels far-fetched, what is the next chapter in 1 Corinthians all about? It's really the crescendo chapter. We, chapter 14 is about prophesying. Then chapter 15 is about the Gospel. Look at what it says. Now I remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you take your stand. And by which you're being saved. That's the issue. It's not about 
putting on an exhibition that I got this great gift. It's not about impressing others. It's about getting people to understand the importance that you can have your sins purified. That's amazing. It's not about saying, wow, did you see what God did in our midst? Yeah, that sometimes, yeah, that's great. But if you miss the gospel, you miss the whole thing. Because that's what sets me at peace with God and one another. There's a journey the gospel takes. And these signs, I believe, are gifts to authenticate that the apostle's word is true. Here's some personal thoughts. Personal thoughts, number one, I have seen people speak in tongues. A lot of people speak in tongues. But I am not so sure it was the same as the Spirit-inspired tongues here. And you might say, why? For one simple reason. They had no interpreter. Number two, tongues to impress unbelievers is like lighting a candle when you can be using the 6,000 lumen LED torchlight of Scripture. We have this, and it convicts, and it changes lives, and it's promised. Third, I'd say tongues for personal prayer and praise I have no problem with. I'm a bit leery of it because I am more of a product of the age of reason and science. And so mysticism is a bit odd to me. But somehow, I think there's a place for emotional release. And I think tongues is a spiritual release. For instance, in the book of Judges, Hannah wanted to have a baby, and she couldn't have a baby. She'd go to the temple, and she'd pray like crazy, and the priest thought she was drunk. She was grieved. And sometimes I think God will use grief, and it comes out, may not be in intelligible words, but that's a way we can process it with Him. And I think it's okay. Maybe we need to be a babbling fool once in a while. Before God, He's okay with that. Fourth thing I'd say is the Holy Spirit seems to be working in me in so many other ways that are less exhibitionist. Like he's really trying to produce in me love and joy and peace and self-control. Last thing I would say is this. If you want to see 1 Corinthians 26 in action where somebody shares a hymn, somebody shares a revelation, somebody shares a prayer request, Somebody shares an insight. I think sometimes it takes the right venue for that to happen. Where there's more freedom of expression. For instance, it's really difficult here because there are large numbers, because you know there's a time limit. But we do have, and we've been doing it for two years now, we call it the gathering. We've been had, we switched Tuesday nights. I'm telling you, this year, there have been some people who entered into the gathering with anxiety and almost depression, coming every Monday, Tuesday night, hearing words of encouragement from each other. Sometimes people would share, share a verse, and somebody said, I was just reading that this morning. And somebody, many times people leave the prayer meetings going, I can't tell you what this has done to me. That's the point. Remember what it said. What's prophecy for? It is for building us up, but encouragement and consolation. I think that's why we need groups, smaller groups. I was at a men's small group yesterday morning, 
And I'm telling you, I went in with a lot of anxiety and I left there more, more encouraged than I've been in years. The Holy Spirit is something we should desire to move in our midst. If we do it with honesty, not exhibition, but if we do it for the pace, purpose of harmony and unity, I think all of us will be blessed.